Welcome to Cabeza de Vaca. Episode 3, A Land So Strange. I'm Brandon Seal. A strange scene unfolded on April 15th, 1528, somewhere near modern-day Tampa Bay, Florida. Just a day after he had disembarked there, the one-eyed governor-to-be of the North American mainland, Panfilo de Narvaez, ordered his 300-man expeditionary force to assemble in front of him, for his officers to present their titles, and for the requerimiento to be read aloud. The requerimiento, or the requirement, translated literally, was a pronouncement which Castilian conquistadors were required to read to the inhabitants of any newly discovered lands. In this case, it informed the inhabitants of La Florida that God had chosen King Carlos, the reigning king of Castile, to rule over their lands. They were told that if they behaved well and became Christians, they would be considered friends of the Castilian king and all of his other subjects. If, on the other hand, they refused to do so, then the Castilians would treat them very harshly and carry them off as slaves. The requerimiento offered a little bit of something for everyone. The threat of conquest, the promise of salvation, and some insights into Castilian civil administration, representing the three aims, really, of Castilian conquest, military, religious, and civil. The entire performance on that April day in 1528 was recorded by Narvaez's notary, with all present serving as witnesses that the natives had been duly informed of their rights. Of course, the natives listening to the requerimiento typically didn't appreciate the nuances of everything that had just been said because the requerimiento was almost invariably read in Spanish, or more properly, in Castellano. As you may have guessed, however, no natives in Florida at this time understood Castellano, or Spanish, or any other European language for that matter. And in this instance, there was another issue with Narvaez's performance of the requerimiento. There were actually no natives around to hear it. They had fled the day before after attempting, unsuccessfully, to exchange token gifts with the newcomers, a gesture that Narvaez had either ignored or missed. And really even, there's a third layer of absurdity to Narvaez's reading of the requerimiento in Tampa Bay. He and his men actually had no idea where they were or what land they were claiming. They had missed their intended landing spot by almost 1,000 miles, landing on the western coast of Florida instead of on the eastern coast of Mexico. Technically speaking, they were outside the grant of land that the crown had made to Governor Narvaez. Yet a small golden rattle found nearby the day before had been enough to fire the imaginations of Narvaez and his expeditionaries, and they figured that this was as good a spot as any to begin their conquest of La Florida and their march into the history books. When they finally were able to capture some Indians and interrogate them about the origins of the rattle, the Indians redirected them to the north, Apalache, they called it, where, according to the expedition's treasurer, Alvar Nunez Cabeza de Vaca, there was rumored to be, quote, a large quantity of gold, end quote, and as well, quote, a great quantity of everything which we esteemed in everything, end quote. Because it wasn't just gold they were after. Corn, more so even than gold, symbolized what Castilian imperialism was all about. Inspired by their Roman forefathers, the aim of these expeditionaries was to discover pre-existing advanced civilizations that they might rule over as overlords, as Cortés had done in Tenochtitlan. In the words of Cabeza de Vaca scholars Rolena Adorno and Patrick Pouts, quote, the indigenous American peoples formed the infrastructure 
on top of which Spanish colonies were built, end quote. And therefore, it was corn, quote, that served as a clue to finding areas that held the potential for sustaining expeditions and supporting European settlement, end quote. On May 1st, 1528, Narvaez called a council of his officers. The governor, the treasurer, Cabeza de Vaca, the ranking priest, the expedition's notary, two executive officers, five captains, and five other friars convened to discuss what the expedition should do next. They broke down into three camps. Narvaez, joined by most of his captains, wanted to march inland and to go after his Tenochtitlan there in the Florida Peninsula. Narvaez had learned from his conquests of Jamaica and Cuba the rewards that accrued to those who were bold. They certainly weren't going to realize any profit from sitting on the coast, while the provisions which Narvaez himself was paying for dwindled away. And recall too that the expeditionaries actually still thought they were somewhere in northern Mexico, closer to the great old Mesoamerican city-states. This unfortunate misunderstanding had only been strengthened by their discovery nearby of Castilian crates with dead Europeans in them, their corpses decorated with brightly colored tropical plumage reminiscent of some kind of great Aztec headdress or something. It didn't seem unreasonable, based on this and other evidence, for them to believe that there might be another Tenochtitlan somewhere close by. The Franciscan friars and the ship's pilots advocated a different strategy, however. They wanted to march along the coast while keeping the ships in sight. And they had good justification. How in the world would they reconnect with their ships once they had ventured out of sight of them? And since they didn't really know where they were, they couldn't even define a landmark where they could rendezvous. And, they reminded everyone, things hadn't gone that well for them on ships so far. Returning to the sea would be, in their view, to quote, tempt God, end quote. Still, as logical as marching along the coast sounded, the Florida coastline didn't really allow for it. Bays and marshes jut inland for dozens of miles, and neither the men nor the horses could live on seaweed and salt grass. And so this strategy seems to have been shot down pretty quickly. Which left it to Alvar Núñez Cabeza de Vaca, the expedition's royal treasurer and the author of the account on which most of this narrative is based, to articulate the third position, that of everyone getting back on the ships and sailing along together until they could at least figure out where they were. Here, he really enters his own narrative for the first time and delivers a pretty powerful condemnation of Narvaez's plan. Quote, The pilots didn't know where they were, the horses were in no condition to be of any use, and above all, we were going about mute and without knowledge of the language, so we couldn't make ourselves understood by the Indians, nor even ask for what we needed in this land we were entering, about which we knew nothing, not what it offered, nor who lived in it, and what part of it we were, and we didn't have enough provisions to enter in a land we didn't know, and all we could offer our men was a pound of biscuit and a pound of bacon each. And anyway, the land that they had seen so far was as unpopulated and poor as any that had been sighted so far in these parts, end quote. As reasonable as Cabeza de Vaca makes himself sound with the benefit of hindsight, his position actually ran directly counter to a much more powerful precedent that most of the Castilian expeditionaries held in their minds, that of Hernán Cortés in Mexico. Just a few years before, Cortés had found his fortune and made his name precisely by leaving his ships behind. Actually, he went one step further. He ordered his ships burned in front of his men, so they would know that there was no turning back. 
That was a hard precedent for Cabeza de Vaca to counter. And as democratic and deliberative as the May 1st Council sounds in Cabeza de Vaca's account, it really wasn't. Again, Narvaez was paying the bills, and Narvaez was in charge. And so, Narvaez ignored Cabeza de Vaca and made his decision. His expedition would march inland, living off the land and the stores of corn they were sure to find along the way to Apalache, where they could replenish their dwindling supplies even more, bring yet another great American empire into the service of the Castilian king, and, God willing, find their own fortunes. The council adjourned, and the men moved out to begin making their preparations. But Cabeza de Vaca wouldn't let it go. Quote, I, seeing his determination, demanded on behalf of your majesty that he not leave the ships without finding for them a safe harbor, and I asked that the notary record my petition. The governor responded that the majority of the council was opposed to this course, and that it was not my place to make these demands. And he asked the notary that he also record that there were no provisions around to support a town, nor a port in which to harbor the ships. As such, he was moving on with the men and going in search of a better port and better land. End quote. And then, Narvaez concluded, looking directly at Cabeza de Vaca, if you're so scared of marching inland, why don't you stay with the ships? With this, Narvaez backed Cabeza de Vaca into a corner, and he knew it. Cabeza de Vaca predictably refused the assignment, quote, I prefer to risk my life than to risk my honor, end quote. He claims that he told the governor that he didn't expect him to ever see his ships again, but that now he felt obliged to accompany the governor anyway and share his fate. And so the next day, when Narvaez's 300-man overland contingent marched north into central Florida, Cabeza de Vaca was with them. For reasons that will become clear soon, history has not been kind to Narvaez for his decision. Very briefly, however, I want to try to defend his decision here, if only for the sake of argument. First, as we've alluded to, Narvaez had the example of Cortez in Mexico and himself in Jamaica and Cuba, examples where fortune rewarded the brave. Second, don't forget that Narvaez is footing the bill for this entire production. And every day that his men are on the ships, they're just burning money. He needed to get some revenue streams going, and fast. Third, his pilots at this time were actually telling him that they were only 30 to 40 miles away from the Rio de las Palmas, their original destination in modern-day Tamaulipas. Yes, the coastline was facing the wrong direction, but coastlines meander, and there was no real reason to believe that his pilots were as wrong as they were. And lastly, a different kind of treasurer, maybe even this same treasurer, frankly, could have given Narvaez just as much hell had he decided not to run to ground rumors of gold in a prosperous native kingdom nearby. Cabeza de Vaca doesn't provide his readers with any of these arguments, however, because he knows all too well how the Inland March will turn out. But the extent to which he belabors this argument with Narvaez is a little uncomfortable. It recalls a few other points in his narrative where Cabeza de Vaca seems to be protesting a little bit too much. Like back in Cuba, when he had been left in charge of two ships and 60 men, which a hurricane destroyed entirely in the course of an evening. In that episode, he goes to pretty great lengths to repeat that he had been begged to come ashore and help buy provisions, and thus wasn't with the ships when the hurricane took them under. And there's also the curious fact that, in addition to being the expedition's treasurer, in his narrative, Cabeza de Vaca claims that he had also been appointed Alguacil Mayor for Narvaez, 
kind of like a second in command, which just wasn't true. Frankly, it seems like kind of a dubious distinction at best anyway, like a deckhand retroactively giving himself the title of first mate on the Titanic. But it's a good reminder that Cabeza de Vaca is writing this account for a particular purpose, and that it is, in some way, our responsibility to try to figure out what that purpose is so that we can help decide what statements to lend credence to and what statements to question. Now, in Cabeza de Vaca's defense, other contemporary accounts are not particularly kind to the old one-eyed Narvaez either. He was stubborn, and frankly, he was a violent, violent man. One contemporary chronicler, who had also known Narvaez in the New World, compared him to a donkey that you had to hit three times because it would forget the first two beatings. And after witnessing his persistent and unseemly lobbying for the command of the Florida expedition, that same chronicler would try to convince Narvaez that he really wasn't made for this. Predictably, Narvaez refused to listen. And in some of Bartolomé de las Casas' first writings denouncing Indian slavery in the New World, Narvaez stands out as a particularly unsympathetic figure amidst a cast of already pretty brutal guys. At one point, after he had ordered the wholesale slaughter of a group of natives right in front of de las Casas' eyes, Narvaez turned to taunt him, quote, How does your grace like what our Spaniards have done? End quote. Nevertheless, Narvaez was, if nothing else, quote, brave in arms as a soldier and skillful as a captain, end quote. And most of the 300 men serving under him on his expedition probably didn't hold his stubbornness or brutality against them. And so they willingly followed him north into Florida, starting on May 2nd, 1528. Forty of the men were mounted, the officers and hireborn whose horses were still alive. The rest slugged along on foot through the Florida countryside. It seemed to them oddly empty. For 15 days, they didn't see another living soul. At last, sometime around May 15th, Narvaez, Cabeza de Vaca, and the rest of the 300 men stumbled into a clearing where they saw an Indian village with some small plots of corn around it, ripe and ready to harvest. The villagers came out to parley with them. We don't know exactly what transpired. Maybe the expeditionaries read them the requerimiento or something. But either way, Cabeza de Vaca tells us, it didn't go well. Quote, After having spoken to them in signs, they signaled to us in such a way that we were forced to turn on them. End quote. The Narvaez expeditionaries took five or six of the villagers captive after their skirmish and made them their guides going forward through the unfamiliar terrain of central Florida. Through the rest of May and well into June, the expeditionaries marched further and further inland. The natives all around seemed to have cleared out in front of them, taking with them everything of value, including now their corn. And so supplies started to run low. At one point, Narvaez ordered Cabeza de Vaca to lead a small party to the coast with a young captain from Salamanca named Alonso del Castillo just to see if they could make contact with the ships. But, in an ominous sign, Cabeza de Vaca and Castillo returned empty-handed. There have been those who contend that Cabeza de Vaca's account is the first work of magical realism, that 20th century, prominently Latin American literary tradition that reveled in mixing the supernatural with the mundane. And the next thing that happens to these expeditionaries would fit pretty well in that genre. One day, in mid-June, as the expeditionaries were sitting in camp, 
they heard an eerie, shrieking sound in the distance. As they rushed to their weapons, they realized that the sound was growing nearer. It was a sound like badly out-of-tune bagpipes. Almost musical, but not quite. Though it did seem to be accompanied by singing. Suddenly, a native lord riding on the shoulders of another Indian wearing a brightly painted deer hide burst into the clearing in front of them, followed by dozens of other natives all singing and dancing like Harry Krishna's. Recall that for most of the last month, Florida natives had cleared out entirely and seemed to have made a point of avoiding the Narvaez expeditionaries. But this lord was something different. He didn't just meekly appear before the expeditionaries. He made an entrance. And yet, why shouldn't something like this have happened? The Narvaez expeditionaries were in a truly new world. A world of apocalyptic storms, of titanic trees rent in two by lightning bolts, of big furry marsupials with their young clinging to them like creepy little sticker burrs. I mean, for Christ's sake, here on the western coast of Florida, which they thought was the eastern coast of Mexico, the sun seemed to be rising in the west and setting in the east. In that kind of environment, a singing, dancing, painted lord seemed just about right. But more seriously, this episode is a reminder that these 16th century men lived in a world where much more was possible, which made it a world that was stranger than we can probably imagine as well, something that Nicolás Echevarria's 1991 movie about Cabeza de Vaca captures so well. Theirs was a world where the divine intervened regularly, and often without a clear explanation as to why, which incidentally was a worldview that the natives of the time probably shared. And when you accept that the world is unintelligible or unknowable, it makes you almost by necessity much more open-minded to everything in it. And so for these expeditionaries, and again, not unlike the Native Americans around them, the idea that the world was at least partly unexplainable was actually proof for the divine's role in it. And the corollary idea that divine intervention might just as likely be good or evil, and that since you could never be sure, you should never judge it or react too strongly to any one thing that happens. And so, as best as we can tell, neither Cabeza de Vaca nor any of the other under-provisioned, tired, and lost expeditionaries unduly questioned the arrival or the motives of this singing, dancing, painted lord. Something about the native lord's arrival actually impressed Narvaez, it seems. It's as though he instantly respected his boldness and felt more inclined to see him as an equal. Or maybe he was just growing desperate. In either case, he changed his playbook a little bit. This time, he was the first to offer an exchange of gifts. He gave to the native lord, quote, beads and bells and relics, end quote, something he hadn't done yet for any of the other natives they had met in Florida. And in this case, it seemed to work. The native lord accepted, and told Narvaez his name, Dulchancheyin. Then, Dulchancheyin settled down his entourage enough so that he and Narvaez might be able to talk a little bit amongst themselves. The two chiefs began then to communicate as best they could via signs. Narvaez eventually came to understand that Dulchancheyin was a sworn enemy of Apalache and would happily guide the expeditionary to his enemy's capital. At last! Narvaez felt that he had found his native ally. He was back on track. The very next day, Dulchancheyin and his men led Narvaez and the expeditionaries out. They marched on like this, for another few weeks actually, well into late June. 
Dulchanche Yin initially gifted the expeditionaries a large quantity of corn from his own village, all while being very careful to keep the expeditionaries from actually entering it. But soon even that corn began to run out. And in the humid Florida summer heat, the men's armor and packs began to wear sores in their backs. The expedition also suffered its first death when a horseman was swept off his horse while crossing a stream, just as the expedition seemed also to have crossed into more hostile territory. Soon after, an expeditionary had an arrow shot at him when he went for water one evening. And a few days later, the expeditionaries were lucky to capture three or four natives that they had found lying in ambush waiting for them. Yet the danger and the hardship was justified in their minds by the potential reward. Each day they were closer to the great Apalache, and even Cabeza de Vaca began to imagine himself, quote, arriving where they had desired and where they had been told there were so many provisions and gold, end quote. Of course, with each day, they were also marching further from their ships, further from their supply lines, and further than ever from their intended destination on the Mexican coast. Thank you for listening. Don't forget to check out the webpage associated with this episode on RevardReport.com, home of nonprofit journalism for a better San Antonio. We're telling important stories here, but a story's power comes from its being shared with others. So please, like, subscribe, and share this podcast with your friends. Editing for this episode was performed by Susana Canseco. Sound engineering by Stephen Bennett. The music for this series is entitled Apache. It is composed by Kevin Graham and available on Soundstripe. A special thanks to Father David Garcia, to Dr. Frank de la Teja with the Texas State Historical Association, to Steve Davis, curator of the Whitliff Collections at Texas State University, to Professor Andres Resendez at the University of California, Davis, to Dr. Carolyn Boyd with the Shumla Archaeological Research and Education Center and also Texas State University, and to David Dunham with Texas Monthly for all their support and suggestions. You'll hear more about them throughout the season. The title of this episode is taken from a line in Cabeza de Vaca's account, but it also recalls the title of probably the most readable and perhaps my favorite general history of Cabeza de Vaca, written by friend of the podcast, Andres Resendez. For a link to his book and the other sources used in the series, you can check out our website at brandonseal.com. <laughs>